And a hearty welcome to one and all. This is episode 91 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I'd like to thank you all for spending some of your Sunday early evening here in New York with me. If you're checking out episode 91 on the YouTube channel or enjoying the content, haven't done so already, don't forget to click like, subscribe, comment, turn on those notifications. Or if you're checking out this episode on the audio platforms such as Spotify or iTunes, same general rule applies. Click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. So today is John Travolta's 70th birthday. He hasn't been that active in Hollywood. He's continued working, but he hasn't really had, for me, a memorable movie and or performance since taking a Pelham Free in 2009. Uh, taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, excuse me, in 2009, a remake of a movie from the 70s starring Robert Shaw uh, right around the time of Jaws, I think just before, and uh, Walter Matthau, among others. Matthau was fucking hilarious in that movie. Um, but Travolta has had a really extraordinary career, even with this last 15 years really not being in that many memorable projects. He's had a few here and there, but a number of years ago there was... People were excited about the fact he was playing John Gotti in a movie, and that didn't work out. The film was very, very bad. Um, but he's, he's a really interesting personality in general, and he's had a strange career path. It looked like he was going to be a singer. He appeared on American Bandstand with Dick Clark, and maybe that was the route that he was going to take. And uh, famously, Welcome Back, Potter with Gabe Kaplan. Uh, for years, and then the movie career. I can't think of another actor who had this kind of path where he came on like shot out of a cannon right away. And, you know, in, in 76, 77, nominated for Best Actor for Saturday Night Fever and made some more really solid films. And then by the early 80s, his career was already on the decline. And, and then he had a semi-rebirth in the late 80s with the Look Who's Talking movies with his future Pulp Fiction co-star, Bruce Willis. But he didn't really make a comeback until Pulp Fiction because there are a number of movies, and if you look through his filmography, as I was just doing earlier, uh, there are a number of films in the 80s and 90s that you've probably never heard of, even if you're a, a Gen Xer and consider yourself a fan. And it's unfortunate there were movies when his career was down that seemed to bring him in just for the name recognition. And I was, like, it didn't really make sense to me why his career would hit the skid. Sometimes it's just picking bad projects. And other times, in the case of when he did Brian De Palma's Blowout, it's a fantastic movie, but it didn't really, it's very sort of heavy and depressing. It was not like a fun thriller that it was kind of marketed as. But my first exposure to John Travolta, oddly enough, was a TV movie called The Boy in the Plastic Bubble, which the same concept was kind of redone in a comedic vein with Jake Gyllenhaal more than two decades ago. It was called Bubble. And that's a weird, medical, disease of the week type movie, but plays a kid who has to stay in this bubble because his immune system is so weak that normal exposure to regular atmosphere will quickly kill him. And that's the first John Travolta movie that I saw. And it's, it's not a great movie. 
but he's so earnest in the role. He's so committed to what he's doing there. It's memorable. And you can see how fame bound him. He wasn't just an unusual, you know, an attractive guy, big smile and hair and, and all of that. But he's hilarious on Welcome Back, Cotter. Vinnie Barbarino, a classic character and a great name for a character. And Gabe Kaplan, um, if you look at some of the episodes, he kind of sees, he sees, but he sees that Travolta has something and he lets him shine. There are certain sitcoms and certain actors in general, not just in sitcoms, that were always territorial and pr uh, protective, not wanting to give any of the limelight away to their co-stars. You know, William Shatner, who I love, there was always the idea that on Star Trek, the original series, and then in the movies, he didn't like the fact that other people were shining in mind Leonard Nimoy or Boris Kelly, but he didn't like other people getting the spotlight. And famously in that case, in Star Trek VI, one of the issues, the reason why he and George Takei still seem to have a beat, the guys are in their 80s now, is because Shatner objected to the idea that George Takei's character is now a captain. Get the fuck out of here. But in Welcome Back, Cotter, um, you can see Gabe, Gabe Kaplan giving him room to shine. And, and then, of course, in the movie Carrie, his first time working with Brian De Palma, he's just fucking dynamite as a sort of an antagonistic high school kid. And that basically led him to Saturday Night Fever, which is, it, it's what we would call a dated film. And by dated, I don't just mean that the movie is now 46, 47 years old. It's that there are themes and concepts in there that don't work anymore. They don't really work. And to say that contemporary audiences would be lost is one thing, they will. But there are just, there are things in there that were mildly uncomfortable then, but now, no, it doesn't, it just doesn't fly. But nothing could shape what he does as an actor in that role. The, the sort of the skill and the confidence for such a young performer in a real first starring role in that kind of movie. John Badham, terrific filmmaker. That sort of big Hollywood movie. He could have easily won the Best Actor Oscar. And Travolta tells a story. He tells a story. I'm smiling, but he was smiling when he recounted it, but it had to have been a devastating moment. And it's not the first time that this sort of thing has happened, where you think that you're winning. Even recently, the Best Supporting Actor at, um, was it the Golden Globes? It may have been um, uh, the Screen Actors Guild Awards. I'm not sure which. It, it wasn't the Globes. But they were announcing Best Supporting Actor. And two of the nominees, the first name is Robert. So when they started to announce Ro Robert, but what was Robert Downey Jr., De Niro thought that he wasn't, you know, he forgot that Downey Jr., that there's another Robert in the same category. And so De Niro, there was kind of a moment that briefly went viral where he clearly thought he was about to win it. No, no, Bobby, it's the other one, the other Robert, Downey Jr. Robert D, Robert D, Downey Jr., De Niro. Travolta tells this story, which is humorous in the way he relates it. Sylvester Stallone, the year um, of those Oscars, where Richard Dreyfuss was up for the goodbye girl, and um, John Travolta was up for Saturday Night Fever. And I don't remember the other nominees offhand. Uh, 
77 is not really a movie, I, a, a year that I studied as intensely <laughs> as 76. Um, is Woody Allen up for Andy Hall? Like, I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I'm actually going to check that out uh, because I'm curious. 1978. Best actor. Okay. Yes, okay. It, it was Woody Allen for Annie Hall. Now, Woody's performance is fucking great, but he was never winning. Marcello Mastriani, foreign film, he wasn't going to win. And Richard Burton for Equus, the movie was not really successful, and many people thought that Burton's performance in that movie was overwrought. What Burton, everybody agrees, is like top three most talented film actors in history, but he gave a lot of shitty performances. He just, sometimes when you have that much talent, it can go wrong. And in the case of Burton, People felt that he didn't exactly maximize his talent to the way that he could have. But clearly the two favorites, Richard Dreyfuss with a Goodbye Girl and John Travolta for Saturday Night Fever. And Sylvester Stallone, I guess because, well, not I guess, the previous year had been his big showing with Rock. He was on stage to uh, give the award for Best Actor. And I think he did Best Actor and Best Actress because that was here he famously marvelous Meryl Streep. But Stallone was on stage. And when he opened the envelope, and Travolta said he was, he was scared shitless. He was so nervous. And, and nowadays, there would have been odds, and what's the odds here in Vegas, this and that. Back then, there was chatter, but nothing like that. So when Stallone opened the envelope, and I haven't seen this. I'm going off of Travolta's telling of the story. He read, instead of saying the Oscar goes to, and then just saying the name, he said something like the Oscar goes to that new young heavyweight. And Travolta said, when Stallone said those words, he thought that meant that he had won, meaning Travolta. And then Stallone announced Richard Dreyfus. Dreyfus had been around already for a number of years. He had starred in Jaws. He had starred in Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz. He had a big role in American Graffiti. If anyone was a new young heavyweight, it was JT. So the fact that he thought he was going to win Best Actor in that split second where Sylvester Stallone made that, and, and listen, this is not to drag Sly. He's trying to have a few minutes here. He's, he's drawing out the suspense. He didn't do it to hurt anybody, but man, what a devastating moment to think that you're about to win an Oscar, and then he met the other young heavyweight, new heavyweight. But Travolta, of course, rebounded from that, and he made Grease, a movie that is one of the first films I saw in theaters in its initial theatrical run, which would indicate, movies in 1978, I don't have to tell you my age for you to be able to take a guess. I was very young when I saw Grease. I was not even kindergarten age. I was barely nursery school age, but even if you didn't know how old I was, you could do a little nursery school level man and figure it out. Wow. At best, he's in his late 40s. Might be in his early 50s. Or maybe he's right in the middle. But I remember seeing Grease in theaters. Music was cute. I, didn't, I couldn't follow the story. I was four. But Grease not only was a hit at the time, but it is, it is a movie that is timeless. It is not a dated film. Unlike Saturday Night Fever. They're both obviously in the musical dancing realm. 
But Greece, aside from the fact that none of the actors and actresses are believable as teenagers, yeah, maybe Olivia Newton-John, maybe if you squint your eyes, she could almost pass for 18. Maybe. But most of the other people look a lot older. It's Dr. Channing. They look a lot older than what they're supposed to be, but it doesn't matter. The movie is so joyful. The dance numbers, everyone is so into it and giving it everything they've got. The choreography is just magnificent. And, and Travolta, he sells it. He sells his character. He's not just, in that instance, taking a break from serious acting after, you know, the kind of heavy stuff that he gets into in Saturday Night Fever. And the irony of Travolta, or one of the ironies for me is, many of his movies which are considered sort of key movies for him, in some cases even iconic, I never watched. I never saw Urban Cowboy which is a movie that a lot of people, when they talk about some of their favorite Travolta films, that's a movie they'll point to. It just didn't look interesting. A guy riding a mechanical bull and that's the movie? Eh. Nah. Not interested. The sequel to Saturday Night Fever, directed by the same Sylvester Stallone. So obviously that moment with, with uh, Travolta and Richard Dreyfuss at the Oscars, it didn't put John Travolta off from wanting to work with Sylvester. And so they made Staying Alive, which I feel like was a box office hit, but it, was, it did not get good reviews. And people are not, in general, or don't consider it a good movie. He worked with Olivia Newton-John again in a movie that I thought, when I was 10 years old and it was on HBO, I thought it was fantastic, called Two of a Kind. It deals with heaven and angels and stuff. I, I thought it was great. They watched it again when I was like 30. It's not good at all. But I mentioned a movie that under different circumstances could have elevated Travolta's career to another level, and that is Brian De Palma's blowout. Now, De Palma, who I've talked, with, I've talked about a lot on this channel, um, is an enormously talented filmmaker. He came out at the same time as Spielberg and Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese. They're all friends. De Palma went to Columbia, Scorsese went to NYU. I think the palm is a little bit older. It's actually Coppola's age. So Lucas and Scorsese and Spielberg is, is the youngest of that, that group of you know, filmmaking masters. De Palma's talent has never been questioned. It's just that maybe sometimes he doesn't pick the best projects. And he also often has chosen problematic projects that did not conform and did not follow what you expect. And what he did with Blowout, Travolta plays a movie sound man who, while out one night recording sound for a movie, he sees what amounts to Chappaquiddick unfold in front of him. For those who don't know what Chappaquiddick is, Google. But he sees a, a car that basically goes off of a bridge and ends up in the water, and there's a woman inside, and John Travolta rescues her. And then the kind of suspense and the mystery takes off from there really, really good actors and great cast. But the film doesn't do what you expect it to. It seems to be building towards one thing, a conventional Hollywood thing, but it does something else. It, ha it echoes the thrillers of the 70s in which the hero doesn't always win and or get the girl. Sometimes he doesn't even end up alive at the end of the movie. And big stars, even such as Clint and, um, and Redford and Beatty, Nicholson, 
Hoffman. They either don't achieve their objectives at the end or don't get the girl or end up dead or all three. And blowout doesn't do what you expect it to. And it did not, unfortunately, elevate Travolta's career. It didn't really do anything. So he continued to work, and he did a movie which is now kind of a cult film in the mid-'80s with Jamie Lee Curtis called Perfect, another film I watched repeatedly when it aired on HBO and Cinemax. Jamie Lee looks fantastic in that film, always was a fan of her. Um, it's not a good movie. It's just not good. And so he continued to work and make these kind of B-level movies. He did a film called Experts with Ari Gross. And then look who's talking. He really doesn't have anything to do in that movie other than look cute, look good. If you want to say the film is, is interesting from the perspective that we're taking Kirstie Alley's position, Travolta is the object of desire as opposed to her being like, okay, we can have a conversation about that. But I never thought any of those movies were any good. But they all suck. First one was a massive hit though. And there were people saying, okay, this is going to jumpstart Travolta's career again. No, it, it didn't. It didn't. And in the case of Bruce Willis, he didn't need any jump starting because his career was already in the stratosphere. And Bruce is the best thing about those movies. The smart alecky way, like it was perfect meld of the actor, his charisma. Boy, what a big Bruce Willis fan I was, man. But the charisma that he had, the cynicism, the sarcasm, He's the star of the film, even though you never see him, because he's just a disembodied voice of little Todd. Quentin Tarantino, as he was getting his film career going with the stupendous success of Reservoir Dogs, got Travolta for what became Pulp Fiction, a, mo a movie that he had co-written with uh, Roger Avery. Roger Avery has had a, a, a pretty good career in his own right, nothing like Quentin Tarantino, obviously, but who has? Um, I am a huge fan of Pulp Fiction. Saw it when it opened here. This is another film, like I mentioned on the podcast about the Blair Witch Project, which was a film that I was desperate to see for six months until it finally hit theaters in the United States. Pulp Fiction won Best Film at the Cannes Film Festival in something like May of 1994. Didn't open over here till in the fall. But I saw Pulp Fiction opening night when it opened in limited release here in the States, and the film itself has old blew me away. It was as good or better than I was expecting. And every major critic, whether it was Roger Ebert, whether it was David Denny, whether it was Vincent Canby, whether it was Dennis Cunningham on CBS2, he could be somewhat of a prank, that guy. Every major critic that I knew of loved Pulp Fiction. So expectations sky high. We went to the old Comac Multiplex, a movie theater that has long since gone the way of the dodo. That theater's been out of business since April of 2011 film is extraordinary. And Travolta got a lot of acclaim, even though to call him the star of the movie is a stretch, because without Googling who has how much screen time, Travolta and Sam Jackson and Bruce Willis, I feel like they have about the same amount of screen time, all of them. It's certainly not Travolta's movie any more than it's Samuel Jackson's movie or Bruce Willis's movie. You can make the argument that it is Bruce Willis's movie. Travolta got a Best Actor nomination, and there was a lot of groundswell. He was, had just turned 40. There was a lot of support and some idea maybe that he would win 
but it was a year of Forrest Gump and a year of Shawshank. And you had uh, Morgan was up for best actor, if I'm not mistaken. I got to Google that one also. I don't want to, I, I, I hate Googling, but I also hate giving you bad information. Best actor, not least. I know that Travolta and, and, okay. You see, I should have known this. Tom Hanks from Forrest Gump, Morgan, I was right, for Shawshank. And I forgot about Paul Newman for Nobody's Fool. Heaven forbid I could forget Paul Newman's last Best Actor nomination. For shame. And the one I never would have gotten. Eventually, I would have remembered those four. Nigel Hawthorne for The Madness of King George. There was talk Travolta was going to win. I, I didn't think his performance was that great. I thought Sam Jackson, relatively speaking, he had a flashier role. I loved what Sam Jackson did for Samuel. I don't want him to get mad, you know, Samuel L. Jackson. But I thought that he did more and was more memorable as Julius. Sometimes a person who has a show or your part is going to get more acclaim. I would have been beyond gobsmacked if Travolta had ended up winning Best Actor. But those Oscars that particular year were very predictable. There, have been, there were other years in the 90s that a lot of surprises but those Oscars, the chalk was Gump was going to win picture, Gump was going to win director, and Tom Hanks was going to win best actor. Now, you can make an argument as to what is Tom Hanks' best film performance? Is it Philadelphia? Is it Forrest Gump? Is it Apollo 13? Is it Castaway? I feel like what Hanks does in Gump is more challenging than in Philadelphia because his character in Forrest Gump is incapable of actual growth, but it feels like he has grown and changed, at least to me, over the events and course of the story. In Philadelphia, he's presented as a really good guy who's getting screwed by fucking assholes. And I'm being kind when that's all I'm referring to them as. Uh, but he's presented as a really good person. And he's a really good person. That's, that's it. Denzel's character in that movie goes from being an asshole to a well-rounded person. A good guy, a mensch, as we like to say. But that's neither here nor there. At the time, I was pulling for Paul Newman to win, even though I had seen that movie, and I, you know, Newman's okay. Hanks was going to win. Even though Forrest Gump has become a bit of a controversial film and polarizing in some quarters because of some of the, the ways that it, it, it puts the images across and messages, I don't really give a shit. I feel like Hanks is, when I say I don't really give a shit, I could argue that movie from any angle you want. That's what I mean by I don't give a shit. Oh, I care very much about what Zemeckis is, the story that he's trying to tell. What did it mean in 1994 when, for example, Vietnam was a lot closer than 1994 is to 2024? What was he trying to do then? How does it look now? Fine. But I don't, I don't really give a crap about that stuff when talking about Hanks' performance. And Hanks' performance, to me, seeing the film within the last 10 years, it seems better than I remember. There is more to what he does there than I thought in 94. And then when I watched it on video a couple of times in 95. So that was Travolta's second Best Actor nomination. He didn't win. Tom Hanks won for Forrest Gump. Again, the irony. Travolta's next movie after, or I should say next big movie, after Pulp Fiction was 
one of my favorite films of the 90s and what I would argue is Travolta's single best film acting. Get Shorty. Barry Sonnenfeld's phenomenal adaptation of Elmore Leonard's novel, which a lot of people really, really love. I had the, um, uh, Mike Lupica, the famous sports columnist, biggest Elmore Leonard fan that I know of, he always talked up how great that book was. And it really is a fantastic book. Get Shorty was a big box office hit. It got a lot of acclaim. And John Travolta won the best actor Golden Globe for Get Shorty. Didn't get nominated for Oscar. And I, I remember I was pissed. I was pissed because I love Get Shorty. I liked it almost as much as Pulp Fiction. And that's a move that I could watch anytime. It is so much fun. And the other main actors, whether it's uh, Delroy Lindo or Gene Hackman or Rene Russo, Dennis Farina, Danny DeVito, Shorty, they're all so good. Harvey Keitel in a cameo. He's on screen for about 15 seconds, fucking screen. That movie is amazing. And it did not get the hardware that I felt that it should have. So Travolta in the 90s, he kind of alternated between box office hits and box office disappointments, but he worked a lot. And sometimes when you work a lot, it can all be bad, and other times it can be more hit than miss. And in his case, for me, it was more hit than miss. He did Broken Arrow with John Woo, the John Woo filmmaker, uh, and Christian Slater. Howie Long, the football player, trying his hand at being an action movie star. I didn't love it. Although his line, John Travolta gets a line of dialogue that ended up being the name of Harry Knowles. A lot of Gen X movie fans know who that is. His website, Ain't It Cool. There's a moment in the film Broken Arrow where Christian Slater basically says, to John Travolta, you're fucking crazy. And Travolta goes, yeah, ain't it cool? Broken Arrow was a hit. And Travolta then did two movies that had spiritual components also in 96. Phenomenon, which I saw in theaters. I like it, but I don't love it. Another movie with a great cast, Robert Duvall, who was always incredible. And um, Kira Sedgwick, wonderful. You know, she's an actress who often plays sort of tough, but in this movie, her character starts as tough and then, and then softens and becomes more human. Really, really solid movie. It seems like science fiction. It doesn't really go there, but it's... I thought it was super entertaining. And it, it made money. It wasn't a huge hit. And then he did a movie which was a big hit, which I thought was terrible, where he played an angel called Michael. William Hurt, an actor I really like, and I think Andy McDowell. The movie just never really takes flight. But it was a box office hit. What I would say is uh, one of the greatest action movies ever made. I discussed it the other day during the action uh, movie episode, so I won't go into detail. Basically. Travolta's performance within the constraints of an action movie with a lot of shit blowing up for two hours. He's great. He gives so much to that role of Sean Archer. And you could say the exact same about his buddy Nick Cage. Cage is also fantastic. Both guys sell it as themselves and as the other, changing the cadence of the speech, changing what they do with their eyes. And the movie succeeds because Travolta really makes you care about his character, his character's pain, and why it's so important to stop this guy. 
whether or not they ever reach some form of mutual understanding, they're always going to be enemies. And I just, I love facing Now, what I would say is, if you ask me, because I, my dad read the book Primary Colors, which was um, Joe Klein, I think was the name of the author, but it was it came out uh, like 97 or whatever it was. Uh, it was written by Anonymous, and then the person who went was Anonymous came forward. It's basically Bill Clinton running for president. It's the character, Jack Stanton, supposed to be Bill Clinton. Book was apparently phenomenal. Movie, it's just okay. It's nothing special. And that was one that was expected to get a ton of acclaim and did. And um, he has a small role in The Thin Red Line. It was Terrence Malick's 1998 uh, war epic, which is in its own way incredible, extraordinary film. It was the year of saving Private Ryan. So the fact that Thin Red Line got a ton of Oscar nominations, including for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, it wasn't going to win any technical or creativity or artistic awards that it was up against Private Ryan for. Even though the film purists like myself would say stuff like, well, Malick's frame composition is better than Spielberg's. Okay. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything to the average person. Uh, if you want to say, is that accurate, it's a gorgeously shot film. Now, if you want me to say that, are the blades of grass that we see for a significant amount of the thin red line, are they really pretty to look at? Yeah. But Travolta in that movie, it's a very quick, he actually plays um, high-ranking. Uh, it's a brigadier general in that film. And um, he doesn't really have that much to do. He's in it. It's, it's not quite blink and you miss it, but it's close. Uh, he's in it for maybe five minutes. Most of the big actors in that movie are in it briefly, except Sean Penn and Jim Caviezel. The film focuses on them. But the most famous thing about The Thin Red Line is that Malick shot more feet of film than anyone ever had. He shot more than a billion feet of film. He had a graveyard of huge stars who shot plenty of scenes and didn't end up in the movie, such as Mickey Rourke and Bill Pullman, among a lot of other big names. And... Um, Adrian Brody famously, when the film was in production, Adrian Brody's character was the star of the book. He's the main character of the book, and he was the star of the movie, he thought. And then when Malick finally finished shooting, when he edited the film, he realized that the segments with Sean Penn and Jim Caviezel worked best, and the stuff with Adrian Brody just wasn't coming across the way that he thought it would when he was shooting it. So Adrian Brody's barely in the movie. Imagine a movie touted you're a star of a movie, and when you go to the premiere, you realize you're barely in it. That's literally what happened to Adrian Brody. That he rebounded from that, just brushed it off and picked himself up and won a Best Actor Oscar himself a few years later, that is a boss right there. That is a boss move. I guess you could say he had no choice, but the disappointment, I can't even imagine. But I do want to talk about what I believe to be the most underrated film and performance in Travolta's career, which is A Civil Action, which was written uh, and I believe directed by Steven Zalian, who had worked with Spielberg, who was one of the people who put together the screenplay for Schindler's List, among others. And A Civil Action is basically Aaron Brockovich before Aaron Brockovich. It is a story of toxic waste, contamination, in urban and suburban areas where it should not be and people getting sick and dying as a result of, here's a word I know you love, here's a great phrase, corporate malfeasance. Corporate malfeasance. 
A Civil Action is a movie about corporate malfeasance. And it's based on a true story, as was Aaron Brockovich. It covers a lot of similar territory. But it has a phenomenal Robert Duvall in a supporting role. And Duvall, actually, I believe the only Oscar nomination this film got was Duvall as Best Supporting Actor. Duvall just absolutely kills it in this role. But Travolta has a character who grows and changes. And he sells every piece of the journey. At the beginning of the movie, he is a well-heeled, well-moneyed ambulance chaser. He takes a lot of easy cases that bring in a lot of money. A case is brought to him, a potential lawsuit, and something clicks that doing the kind of law that he's been doing is not going to work. And he devotes his life and his business and the lives and of everyone else with him in the business, including William H. Macy in kind of an earlier role for him. Macy is great in this movie, too. But the movie does not do what you expect. I didn't know the, the true story. But the way Travolta's character starts here and gets so involved that it's like he's, he's almost laying himself low and he no longer gives a shit about the material things. He doesn't care about driving a Bentley or going out with nothing but gorgeous women in their 20s who are all over him. All he wants to do is set this right. And it is, I think it's, it was an Oscar-level performance, and nobody gave a shit. The film didn't do that well with critics. It had some defenders. It made some 10 best lists. But if I didn't know, I would think, well, of course, this movie should have gotten all kinds of award nominations, not just because Robert Duvall is always great. And um, unfortunately for Travolta, you know, General's Daughter, it's okay. It was a modest box office hit. Battlefield Earth really, really hurt his career. There's no getting around it. Unlike his pal, Bruce Willis, who did Hudson Hawk, which tanked, but it didn't really hurt Bruce's career. It could have, but Bruce had been in other disasters, but always rebounded. And Battlefield Earth really hurt Travolta because it was a passion project, and it, you know, it, it's not just that it bombed, it's a terrible movie where you wonder what the hell were they even thinking making this, this disaster. I don't know the last Travolta movie that I saw in theaters. I'm trying to remember. I didn't see Swordfish in theaters. It's okay. Hugh Jackman, you know, pretty young at the time. He's a riot. Halle Berry looks great. <laughs> it's okay. The movie Basic, which got a lot of play on Netflix a few years back with Samuel Jackson, I thought it was really good. Most people thought it sucked. That's a, a, a kind of a military court-martial type. Lots of twists. One twist after another. A lot of people didn't like it. Certainly very entertaining. He did a movie with um, Scarlett Johansson in the mid-2000s, a love song for Bobby Long. I thought it was really good. It came out and it died. Did not get great reviews. Did not make any money. You know, Ladder 49, which was a little bit like a backdraft light. Joaquin Phoenix didn't do very well at the box office. Didn't make any money. And, um, you know, he just, he did a lot of movies that weren't good, like Old Dogs and um, From Paris with Love. Taking a Pelham 123 with Denzel is to me his last really terrific performance. And um, I mean, I was familiar with the story because I actually read the book. The book is phenomenal. The first version of the movie with, as I say, Walter Matthau and Robert Shaw, among others, terrific. The remake is very good. 
and it it doesn't do exactly what you expect it to do. And Travolta's character is not exactly what you expect him to be. But it's well worth seeing. I love Denzel just as much as the next guy. And it's a little bit of a different role for Denzel, too. Um, and a couple of years later, he and Chris Pine made another movie set on a train called Unstoppable. We can't close this episode without discussing the terrible tragedies that Travolta has absorbed on a personal level. Uh, I believe it was 2009, it was about 15 years ago, that his son Jed died tragically. And um, there was talk that, that Jed had not gotten the proper care because of Travolta's belief in Scientology. And nobody really knows if that's true, but that's what was reported at the time. And it, it's so terrible. Uh, the child was diagnosed with Kawasaki syndrome. I think it's called Kawasaki syndrome. Uh, but it, it, was, it was a shock. He was not, like he hadn't been sick for years kind of thing. And Travolta was devastated. Yeah, he's an actor. Yes, he's a multimillionaire. He has his own private jet. All of that stuff. But when he spoke of it, the hurt and the pain and, and the, the, the devastation, I mean, how could your heart not ache for the guy? You know, Travolta was mid-50s at the time. And unfortunately, his wife, Kelly Preston, died, uh, died of cancer in 2020. Um, it's just horrible. You know, say what you will, I have no doubt that their marriage was, was loving. And like, this, this was not a phony marriage. It was, yeah, well, they really, no, I, I don't buy that. I think that they were partners, they were life partners. But she had a terrific career in her own right. She's great Jerry Maguire. And there were other movies of the 80s and 90s where she registers very strongly. Um, just so much sadness and so much tragedy. His daughter, Ella, is, is awesome. Remember, they, they did a TV commercial that aired during the Super Bowl, I want to say, three years ago. And he still works. But much like Nicolas Cage has had this incredible resurgence, even if Renfield sucked, but he's had this, this really amazing resurgence in the last couple of years, and I'm, I'm loving that, of course. Love Nicolas Cage. Despite the fact that, like Travolta, maybe even more so, Nicolas Cage has made so many terrible movies. So many terrible movies. And I throw the Wicker Man remake by Neil Lemieux, who I love in general, in there. So many bad movies. But I hope, a fervent hope, assuming he wants to continue to work. He doesn't have to. No, he's worth a couple hundred million dollars. But if Nicolas Cage wants to work, I hope that a major filmmaker, whether it's a Chris Nolan, whether it's a Scorsese, whether it's a Spielberg, or whether it's a younger master like a David Finch, Darren Aronofsky, that somebody somewhere has at least one more great Oscar-worthy role for this guy. And I would love to see him win an Oscar, selfishly speaking for everything that he's done, that, that he's contributed to the, to the movie business. And just come across like a really good guy on top of it for absorbing all that tragedy and not letting it break him. And not coming across like somebody who is miserable or sad. I remember there was a, a few years ago, there was a, a pizza shop opening and then he did some dance moves and he was eating the pizza in front of him. He just seems like a regular guy. I know somebody that actually met him in a hotel gym many, many years ago friend of mine from Bev's, and he said he was so nice. He was so nice. You wouldn't have known he was a movie star. One thing that this guy was devastated, he realized that Travolta wore a hairpiece. 
he didn't know Travolta was almost entirely bald, and he was crushed. You know, like when you learn your heroes that that's not really their hair. But that's just a little funny story. Um, in that instance, you know, they say to never meet your heroes, but never meet your heroes because it turns out that they don't have the hairline that you may have thought they otherwise did. But happy birthday, happy 70th birthday to New Jersey native, John Travolta. And this has been episode 91 of the Confessions of a Not-So-Dangerous Mind podcast. I know I ran long, but there's a lot to talk about with this guy, and I skipped a lot just as much. Uh, but if you checked out this episode on the YouTube channel and haven't done so already, uh, don't forget to click like, subscribe, comment, turn on those notifications. Or if you caught this episode on the audio platforms such as Spotify, iTunes, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, same rule applies. Click like, subscribe, turn on those notifications. I'll be back with episode 92 real, real soon. Until then, 